0: If you guys haven't been able to tell, I wish I could say that I don't have as much of a voice uh, from allergies this week. Um, in reality, it has something more to do with spending two hours trying to get a car out of a mud pit. You can imagine what joy it is to spend your Christmas Eve trying to do a good deed for a neighbor and uh, getting your car stuck in the process. There was a lot of, uh, yes. So, please bear with me this morning. The good news is that the car is in a parking lot here now, so it is out of the mud pit. We are wrapping up Malachi today, church, and uh, we, I've enjoyed this book. Um, It's not one that I have probably spent as much time with in the past as, as you know, maybe, maybe some of you have. Maybe you've read Malachi more than I have. But this has been a really cool bridge kind of between what we're seeing of God in the Old Testament and when we get to Jesus in the New Testament. And when we are planning out the sermon series for the year, it was not by accident that we picked Malachi to go through December because where Malachi ends is going to really prepare us for Jesus. We saw earlier in reading that Luke story about how, you know, as God has been calling his people to trust him, as people start to actually trust him, God shows up. And when God shows up, he brings his presence, right? He says, I'm here. Here we go. I'm here. This is what I've been working for. I'm with you now. He brings his grace. He says, now that I'm here, let's make things right. Right? Like, I know that you've been broken apart from me in your sin, but now that I am here, let's make things right. And then he says, and now here's my life. Right? Now that you are right with me, come join me in life together. And those three things coming as a result of trust is exactly what we're going to see in Malachi. If you remember all the way back to Malachi 1, God shows up and he finds his people... They're frustrated that the future they wanted to have is not there. They're frustrated that their past that looks so good to them, the good old days, they're gone. And they're very bitter about where they're currently. So God shows up and in chapter 1 he says, hey, I need you to remember who you are. There's something fundamental about being reminded of who you are that just, it snaps you out of whatever Whatever stew you're in the middle of working on, right? So God reminds them, okay, this is who you are. Then he shows up and says, okay, who are you? You're my chosen. You're my beloved. You're my priests. Like I made you to make peace with one another. You're my my covenant partners. I called you to bear fruit. And then last week we said, after God reminds them, he says, I need you to trust this. Right? like There's a lot of different voices that will tell you who you are. There's a lot of different things that you're going to see in life that you're going to want to go after. But I need you to trust what I've told you and who I am. And at the end of Malachi, I paused before we got to the end of chapter 3 because I didn't want to spoil it for you. But now God's people respond. And this is going to be super cool to watch what happens today. But this, this is beginning in verse 16 of chapter 3. Now we see, what does Israel do? now they've been confronted with all of this. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and he heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession... And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. That day is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded to him at Horeb for all Israel. And behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction." Lord, thank you for giving us insight to how you work with your people. God, thank you for giving us the joy of seeing seeing your people remember who you are, remember what that makes them, to actually see them commit to want to be with you, Father, and thank you for reminding us of the promise that we have when we join in making that same commitment that Israel did, Lord. May we be reminded of that because we get to do that in Christ. And Father, there's many in here today who have made that commitment, Lord, that we are living in new life through your spirit with you today because of your son. May that joy and that, that desire for you, God, that we've had when we first came to know you, may that just be rekindled and stoked even larger today, Lord, as we are reminded of this at Christmas. In your name we pray. Amen. So, Israel finally responds. And what we see in verse 16 says, Then those who feared the Lord, they spoke with one another. This is kind of the Old Testament's way of saying, they're about to get on the same page with God. You know, God shows up and says, this is what I want. They kind of huddle together together. Somebody else break. They come out of the huddle, and it says the Lord paid attention to them and that he heard them and that he wrote. There's a book of remembrance written before them. All of this is this Old Testament language way of saying they reformed that covenant, right? That, that God has now brought them back into a covenant with him. Israel has said, okay, God, we hear you. We see that you're saying that's who you are and that this is who I am. I trust you. And now that they've said this, now we can actually see, okay, what happens when you and I declare, okay, God, I'll trust you. I see you telling me this is who you are. I see how that affects who I am. This is where we've been in Malachi. When we say, okay, God, we trust you. And I love, guys, if, I don't know if you really picked up on this, but when I read those verses, the scripture doesn't really focus on what the people of God do. Right? like You and I tend to think about faith as, okay, I've put my faith in Jesus, now what do I do? The scripture here shows us a picture, though, of God saying, now that you trust me, here's what I do. Same kind of pattern we saw in Exodus, where God shows up and says, okay, if we're going to be in a covenant, it's not so much I'm expecting things of you, let me show you what both sides of this covenant look like. And the first thing God promises his people when they show up and say, we trust you, God, God grants Israel his presence. It says in verse 17 that he, they're his, right? They belong to him. He calls them a treasured possession. And I just, I just want to pause real quick because in Malachi and in Exodus, we've both heard Israel described as God's chosen people. We've seen them depicted as a, a royal priesthood. And now we're seeing them as a a treasured possession that should ring some bells in your head. Peter picks up on this when he writes in his letter, but this is who you are, church, you are. And then he lists these three things because he's just pulling from all this Old Testament language where God says, this is who you are to me. You are my chosen people, my royal priesthood here. God says, you are my treasured possession. That that's because you bear my image, I actually would want to be with you. That that." that we would be some sort of prize, that's, that should hopefully change how we look at ourselves at least, if nothing else, that we are the treasured possession of God. God's showing his people, look, if you will trust me, I'm going to be with you. Like I'm bringing you to dwell with me. My presence is going to be with you because you are valuable to me. God grants Israel his presence. The second thing, though, he grants them is his grace. We see also in verse 17, God says, "...I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him." Now this, I try not to dive too much into this, but sometimes it just comes up where our English doesn't fully capture everything that's going on. When we hear the word spare, if you're like me, you assume sparing someone from something is like getting a get-out-of-jail-free card, right? To be spared from something means, oh, thank God I do not have to go through that anymore. But the verb there for spare is chamal. And I can't, ironically, I can't say it because of the phlegm at the back of my throat. Uh, in Hebrew, you kinda wanna keep a little bit of phlegm at the back of your throat. But it's chamal, which means to spare, but also to have pity on someone or to have compassion on. So it's, it's not so much the idea of I'm gonna spare you by letting you avoid it, it's the idea of I'm going to spare you by giving you pity, giving you compassion, giving you grace as you go through something. In this case, it also appears that this grace is not quite deserved. So God says, just as a man sees his son serving him, the father can't necessarily keep the son from everything all the time, but he can give his son grace in his relationship with the son. God says, this is how I will treat you, Israel. I'm not pulling you out of everything, but I am giving you my grace as you walk through it. And that would fit, guys, with what we read last week, right? Malachi 3, at the very beginning, God talks about, he says, I'm going to show up, and I'm going to be a purifier. I'm going to be a refiner for my people. If God says that one chapter earlier, I'm going to refine, I'm going to purify. That doesn't sound like the language of... I'm just actually going to let you get off the hook over here. God says, "No, know, my, my judgment, I'm pouring it out. Like I am pouring this out on all of us. But because you are with me, because you trust me, because my presence is with you, my grace is also with you, that I will cover you in my grace as I do this reconciliation work. We'll get to the purifying bit. In just a minute when we hit chapter 4. But God says, look, my, my presence will be with you. My grace will be with you. And we also see in verse 18 that my life is going to be with you. God says, once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Right? The, the Hebrew language there has given us this picture. That God says, when I'm with you. And when my grace is covering you. That you will actually be able to see what is of me. And what is it? Right, this idea of we'll know what life with God looks like and we'll, we'll know how to avoid the life without God. Now, I do want to pause real quick because that, that sounds really good. Right, like I, I want that distinction. I, I want to be able to have that discernment. God, what does it look like to have life with you? What, is, what does it look like to not have life with you? The context is key. What is Israel doing at the moment God says, I will give you my life. They're trusting him. Now, what was Israel doing before this moment? They were serving. They were doing. They were trying to rebuild the temple. They were restarting the sacrifices. Their, Their focus was all on, we have to do the right thing. We're in the right place. We've got the right people. We're doing the right thing. And I just think it is so ironic that God shows up to his people and says, oh. Man, your focus is so much on trying to do the right thing, you don't even know what the right thing is. And Israel, I'm not giving you this discernment because you have figured out what the right thing is. And the more that you're striving towards just trying to figure out what's right, that's actually not going to entice me to give you my life. It is when you decide, I will trust you. I will trust your reconciliation work. God says, now you will be able. When you see me, when you trust me, now you'll be able to make this distinction. He's basically telling Israel, look, quit trying so hard to make all this right stuff happen on your own. Start making sure your heart trusts, I am doing reconciliation work. And once you start trusting that, will you not see what that looks like? Will I not show that to you? And I love how all three of these, this, this presence, this life, this grace, you can't, you can't really split these apart. God says this is part of my covenant, right? That if, if you are with me, you're going to have my grace. You're going to have my life. You don't just get one and then have to work to earn the rest. In fact, Israel couldn't do anything to manufacture getting God's grace or getting God's life apart from having his presence, and so I started thinking, okay, okay, because sometimes we see pictures like this in scripture, and we go, but do I see that anywhere else, right, like, does, should this make sense to me that, okay, God is telling me I need to trust his reconciliation work so that in that trust, then I'll actually get to be with God and I'll be able to see what life with him is supposed to look like and I'll, I'll have his grace, right? Where else have we seen anything like that? And it realized, you know what? That's what we had in the garden. When God shows up and he puts man in the garden, he says, look, you're with me. You have everything you need. The one thing I ask you, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I'm presuming it's because God is saying, you know what? You have everything you need with me. I'm able to show you what life is. I'm able to show you who I am. I'm able to show you what that looks like for you. You don't even need to worry about what life without me looks like. I didn't make you for that, Adam. If you trust me, then we can dwell together and this is going to be good. That Hebrew word tov, perfect. Perfect. And yet Adam and Eve did not. They did not trust God. In fact, they said, God, we get that what you've done is pretty good, right? Like this life with you is pretty great. But I'm, I'm just really curious. Like, are you sure this is really the best? Like there's nothing else out there. And they went and they took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And now they were introduced to this tension. Oh, oh, there, there are other ways to live. There are other pursuits outside of God, and now they've got that tension within them saying, okay, I did not really trust that what God said, what he made, what he's ordained, who he is, that that actually is, I hate using the language best, but the the best life that we were made for, and now they know there's other, other narratives that start appealing to them. And I don't think it's an accident that when God sends Adam and Eve out of the garden, that curse that we see in Genesis 3 actually fits with these promises that were are told here in Malachi 3. Because God says to his people, hey, when you trust me, I will give you my presence. I will be with you. But in Genesis 3, God says, you do not trust me, so I am sending you out. In, in Ma- Malachi 3, God says, okay, I will give you not only my presence, I'll give you my grace, right? That you will be right with me. God says in Genesis 3, we're no longer right. In fact, all the things that I made for you, they're, they're broken. So they've, they've lost out on God's grace there. Now, I, I put an asterisk next to that one because God continues to demonstrate his grace for us. But they separated, Adam and Eve separated themselves from God when they chose to not trust him. God says in Malachi 3, look, I'm going to give you my life. When you trust in my reconciliation, God says in Genesis 3, you did not trust me. So your life, your relationships, your work, the way that you, Adam and Eve interact together, all of that is broken. Right. All all of this has now been broken. Because you're no longer in this covenant. And I think Paul, this is what he's getting at. When he declares in Romans 7, and, and I apologize because even if I had my voice, I would butcher this because this is the famous, you know, do, do, not do passage that I love to read in middle school because of all the do's. But Paul writes this in Romans seven fifteen. He says, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do not do what I want, I agree with the law that it is good. I, I, I see this, God. I see that I was made to trust you, made to say that, God, you had an image that you put in me. That's the life that I was made for, and I was told to trust you at the beginning. But, God, I also see there's a lot of other things that, that look pretty good. And, God, I, I, I see that there's this tension that exists between the sin that we have and And the righteousness that we were made for. So how do we get freed from this? This is where Paul says in 24. Wretched man that I am. He says I'm tired of this. I I even see that this is happening. And I cannot stop it from happening. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? What frees me? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Christ is the one that brings us back, that gives us an avenue to say, okay, God, I recognize that I don't trust you, but I want to. God, I, I do trust you. I mean, I always think of this centurion, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And it's cool that we start to see glimpses of this in Malachi 3 because this is exactly what we see repeated again in Malachi 4. In Malachi 4, God almost kind of hints a little bit that Jesus has come to fulfill all of this. Because if you look in chapter 4, the pattern just repeats itself. Verse 1, we're told that all the arrogant and the evildoers will be stubble on the day that is coming, which if you've ever read through the Old Testament, the day to come, that great day, the day that's coming, that all of that is, is language regarding God's judgment. So something big is coming. All the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. And, and I love how Malachi does this, this little trick with the Hebrew. That word there for, for arrogant is zed. It means prideful. Those who take pride in something other than God. Those who say, ooh, this is how I was made, but there's there's some other narrative over here that looks pretty good. And then there's evildoers, literally just the doers of the opposite of God's design. So God says there's people with a heart problem and people with the the heart problem leading to a physical problem. Both of these are going to be eventually made stubble. And that, that judgment language fits with last week, guys. So this is where that, that purifying, refining comes back into play. I'm sure you, you may have heard pastors, because this is an image that comes up a lot in Scripture. So we love to tend to talk on it. Um, I'm sure Bob has talked on it many times. But when you think about refining in Scripture, it's, it's the process of heating something literally until it melts and all this stuff that's not pure or is not part of the original metal, it just kind of gets left, right? Like It, it, it just kind of turns to stubble, as the text says, but it, it gets rooted out. So what's left is this pure, moldable liquid. You know, you can reshape it to whatever you want. It cools, as, and as it cools, it gets hard again. So that's, that's the picture of refinement. Well, God is showing here in chapter 3 and chapter 4 that this is what he's planning to do for all this creation. He says, I'm going to pour out my judgment. Basically, I'm going to heat everything up. And I'm going to kind of see what comes to the surface. And whatever is there, that that wickedness is going to be removed. And what is left with a a pure core, essentially, is I can work with. Right? That, That image that I put in mankind, I can redeem. But God says, look, but those who are not with me, The arrogant, those who do not have a heart, that is trusting me. says, there's not going to be anything left. Once the impurities burn up, that's it. But we're told in verse 2, God says, okay, but here's the language regarding those who who have trusted me, who do have life in my spirit. He says, uh, for those who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall and you shall tread down the wicked. So this is a a picture of this like new and vibrant life. So again, again, we see a picture here. God saying, look, if my presence is with you through my judgment, my grace then is with you. Here's new life. Here's my life. All of this held together by trusting God. And I do really want to make sure we hit this, because if you read verses 2 through 3, when we start to, you know, we read the verbs and we say, okay, so this is what we got to do. It says, for you who fear my name, that be one verb, you shall go out leaping like calves, that's the second verb, you shall tread down the wicked, the third verb. So most of us will read this and say, ah, oh, we have to fear God, we have to go out leaping, and we have to tread down the wicked. So we get this idea of faith almost as being like going out to boldly conquer the wicked. But there's really only one main verb. There's only one thing God is saying, this is what I'm asking you to do. Let me take care of the rest. This one thing I'm asking you to do is in verse 2, where he says, fear God. Trust me. The same message he has given all throughout the entire book of Malachi. The same message he's given to his people all throughout Scripture. In fact, he echoes it again in verse 4. He's like, just to make sure we're clear, as, so you know this is what I'm after. Verse 4, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him. He says, remember the foundation of what makes you right with me. Remember this covenant. Remember this foundation. Trust this. And guys, this is where we are slightly different. From Israel, Because the foundation for our covenant is no longer in the law, right? For us, we're, we see in the New Testament, this is, this is in Jesus. And I love that God even ends Malachi saying, okay, for now, the foundation for my covenant is in the law, but it's not always going to be there. In fact, he says in verse 5, I'm sending a prophet before my judgment to prepare people's hearts. So there's that heart emphasis we keep seeing in Malachi. Basically to receive a new covenant of reconciliation. Now the prophet Elijah has already come and gone, right? So when, when Malachi says, Elijah, the people are going, uh, you, you do know he's, he's been dead for some time, right? Like uh, Elijah has already passed on. So John, or Malachi is speaking about somebody else to come. The New Testament points us to say this is John the Baptist who comes up about 400 years after the book of Malachi. And then, kind of the biggest indication that what God is after is this trusting him. In our scriptures, the way most of our Bibles laid out, if you go from Malachi. The next thing that happens... Well, mine just has a page that says the New Testament. But you flip one page and you're in Matthew. Okay, One page between the end of Malachi and the beginning of Matthew. That one page doesn't really give your mind the idea of 400 years of silence. 400 years between the end of Malachi and the beginning of of the New Testament of Matthew when Jesus Christ is born 400 years. Why? If you count Jesus' life and his ministry and go all the way up into his death, that gap goes to 430. Now, there's another place. This, I promise this is my last rabbit trail. There's another big place in Scripture where we see a period of silence for 430 years. And that would be between the end of Genesis about Exodus 14 when Moses comes and redeems Israel out of Egypt. If you go to the end of Genesis, the the book ends with Jacob blessing his sons. He says, "Guys, remember the covenant. Remember who you are in light of who God is. Remember what God has done for you. Remember this relationship. Remember this restoration work, this reconciliation work. Remember what God is doing. Guys, we're about to go off into a strange land, Egypt. Do not forget to trust this reconciliation work. And the first thing that happens as soon as Israel gets into Egypt, they say, ooh, here's a kingdom that's got more power than us. Here's a kingdom that's got the ability to produce more than we can. Here's a kingdom of people that the rest of the world really respects because of all that they're able to do. We want to be like them. Think about a kid on Christmas going, ooh, that's that's shiny. I want that. And they're enslaved for 430 years because God says, I asked you to trust me. That is what I have been after And when you do not trust me, we enter this brokenness, this slavery, this sin. And God has to show up and he has to raise up a deliverer who's going to pull his people out of that and say, okay, let's try this again. Remember who I am and who I have made you and let's live and dwell in this covenant together. The exact same pattern goes from Malachi To Jesus, God shows up here right at the end of Malachi, calls his people to trust him, calls them to remember him. His people say, great, let's do it. As soon as they do this, though, Israel is still under the rule of Persia. They go, hmm, Persia is a nation that has a lot of power. Persia is a nation that can produce a lot. The rest of the world really looks up to Persia because of how much they can do. Ooh, that looks shiny. I want that. And then Israel is in slavery to Persia and then to Rome 430 years until Christ. And we celebrate today kind of that, that beginning, that 400-year mark of, okay, but now the Messiah is here. Now God is going to come up and say, I have told you guys, this is what I desire. Trust that my reconciliation work will bring you my presence, bring you my grace, bring you my life. And this is what I have made you for. This is the promise that we have in Jesus' church that we get to celebrate every year on Christmas. So as we think toward application this morning, I, I think it's, it's good for us to kind of place ourselves in Israel's shoes. Okay, They're making a commitment. They don't fully understand all the commitment. They want to be in this covenant relationship with God. And in that moment, God finally has their heart. Okay, We've been talking, Malachi, what God's after is the heart. God finally has their heart. What comes next is the struggle to keep that heart in a right place. What what I've put in my notes is I've just called it a struggle with longing. Like, God, I really want this but then sometimes I I don't, right? A struggle of longing. And and for me, the holidays are a time where we really are kind of confronted by what we're longing for, right? I, I think I said this in Malachi 1, but there's not a whole lot that comes up every single year at the exact same time other than holidays, which is why people tend to have so much anxiety and stress on the holidays, because immediately you think back to whatever you did last year. And for some people, last holiday was way better than this one. Right? There were, there were people that you had then that aren't in your life now and we miss them. We were, maybe you're living in a different place. Maybe your job was like we think about all the things that have changed very rarely for the better. And it's no wonder that we we are depressed. It's we struggle in our longing in these in these seasons. And I love how the the picture we get in the whole book of Malachi, God's not showing up and telling him longing is wrong. He's not saying that desiring something deeply in your heart is wrong. But he's showing up and saying, but I did make it to go a certain way. And I I need you to trust me. Keep your longing on me. He cautions us to not fall away from God in our longing. And so I started to think this week, okay, what are... There's a bunch of different ways we could take this. But what are some of the common ways that you and I struggle in our longing? And the three that I was thinking of was, well, we settle. Right? We say, God, I, I've been waiting for this long enough. This thing right here in front of me looks like the closest I've ever seen to this. I'm just going to take it. We settle. Sometimes we grow impatient. God, I am tired of waiting for you to do blank. I'm just going to go make it happen. And sometimes we completely change the object of our longing. God, I was waiting for you. I'm done. I'm going to go do this thing over here instead. Okay? So, so trying to think about how if I struggle with my longing, it affects my ability to trust. Because I, I was talking last week, and this is one of the hardest things for a pastor to try to explain, how trust is an active work. The, the picture that comes to my mind, and I'll share it with you guys this morning, because hopefully this helps you kind of wrap your minds around it. Abigail and I were engaged uh, for 18 months, which was a, it was a very long engagement. Um, it was very difficult. Uh, but I was a junior, well, no, I was a senior. I was halfway through my senior year of college. She was halfway through her junior year of college. And we both, we, when we got engaged, you're like, well, we would like to be married, not sure how in the world we would do that and still both be in two different colleges, so we'll just wait till we're done. 18 months of having to trust this commitment and this covenant we're going to make is worth like the waiting for and the trusting. It called for a lot of active work, but it was a very difficult season. I mean, we, we had to learn that it goes way beyond, like, you can only talk about what, are, what do you like to do, what do you not like to do for so much. And when you only see each other for, you know, maybe a weekend or two, you know, of a month, you, you only have so much time you get to have together. So we had to work really hard to trust in our longing. So there were, there were a couple dates where, you know, we would talk about things like, hey, you know, how did your parents discipline you when this happened? Or, hey, how did your parents... Handle finances about this thing. Like we had these deep conversations because, like, if we're going to invest and trust so much in this, we want to make sure we're on the same page. In fact, we we almost did it a little too much because we went to a uh, an engaged couples weekend and they were asking questions like, "So who do you think is going to cook more, or who do you think has more pairs of shoes?" And we came in dead last. We did. I don't think we got. Maybe we got maybe one of like the fifteen questions right. Like. We had no clue, very basic things about one another like that. We we're like, oh, we should, we should have some fun with this too. But you know, like when you're trying to determine if you're going to trust something, like it's a different type of conversation that you're having. It's different things that you're watching for, more than just do you like this, do you like that. You're watching, okay, how do you respond to stress? You know, what do you get stressed out about? We were four hours apart the whole time, so our communication just—it was very different. Um, and I don't say any of this to say we did it perfectly, but when you're having to trust that a covenant is worth it, it's very easy to struggle in terms of settling, right? Abigail and I could have just said, you know what, this is not that bad. You get to have your life in South Carolina. I get to have my life here in Virginia. We can just kind of keep seeing one another and then go back. This is not that bad, right? We could have just settled, you know, most people probably wouldn't in that season, but we could have. We could have also grown impatient. We could have just said, you know what, like, we know we're getting married. Let's just go ahead and be married. You know, we, we could have eloped. I mean, we could have moved up the date. I could have told Abigail, hey, you don't, you don't really need to finish college. Like, when I graduate, just come up here. Like, we could have taken a different path. We could have also, and I'm grateful for this, we could have, we're grateful this didn't happen. We could have changed the object of our longing. Either one of us could have said, you know, I like that person over there four hours away. Here's this person right here who I know I could probably date and marry in way less than 18 months. Right? Like, again, that struggle is a real struggle that you and I have when we're in seasons that we're called to trust. And we're seeing this with Israel, right? Israel was called to trust, they settled. They said, God, we know the sacrifices to make. We know how the temple is supposed to look. We're just going to go do these things, right? Israel grew impatient. They said, God, we're not really sure if you're coming back, so we're just going to start doing some stuff on our own, right? They changed the object of their longing. We heard all the way back in Malachi 1, God shows up and says, you don't actually want me anymore. In fact, you're just mad at me because I didn't make you an earthly kingdom power like you thought was coming. God says you don't, your longing has changed. What you're after has changed. Now, I, I do, as your pastor, I do want to be sensitive because, look, this, this idea of longing, especially in context of relationships, is one that we all face. Okay? So I know we have seasons where we have struggled with impatience or settling or changing the object of longing. And please hear me as your pastor. I'm not attempting to pound anyone on the head if you have struggled in one of those seasons. But I hope that we're seeing when God calls us to trust his work, his reconciliation, we will struggle with that. Okay? It is not an inherently easy work that we are called to do. But from what we're seeing in Malachi, guys, as, as much as I can tell you, especially on, on Christmas Day, say it is, it is worth it. So let's consider our own struggles with longing as we wrap up. Okay, the, our reflection question first what, what do we long for? Right, what is our heart desire right now? Again, Malachi says longing's fine, right? Desiring something is fine. But let's, let's note what that is. What do you long for? What is your heart desire right now? The second question, where are you struggling in your longing? Do you feel tempted to settle? To say, God, I, I've been praying about this. I see this in you, and I want this, this promise of you to be made real in my life. I just don't see it happening. This thing over here is pretty close. I'm just going to take that. Where are we settling? Where are we acting out of impatience? God... I feel like you've promised this to me, but I haven't seen it come yet, so I'm going to go make it happen. Where are we changing the object of our longing? God, I'm really not even sure if you can do this anymore, so I'm just, I'm done. I'm going to look for something else. What do you long for? Where are you struggling? And guys, just as we do our last song, well, we've we've got one or two songs left, but just take a moment and bring it to him, okay? Because this is what God did for Israel. He shows up and he says, look, your longing has been off. It has been lacking. Let's just remember who you are for a second, and then I can work with this. So maybe today as you bring this before the Lord, you need to reaffirm or affirm for the first time a commitment to say, okay, God, I will trust that your reconciliation work is worth it, that it's actually going to bring me your presence, God, that you will actually be with me when I trust you. God, I trust that your reconciliation work is going to bring me your, 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 your life, that I'll actually get to be with you. You'll show me what to do, what not to do. God, I trust that actually trusting in your reconciliation work means Your grace is with me, God, that that I'm not having to put on a show for you. I'm not having to perform for you. I'm not having to try to figure out the right thing to do for you. That I get to be with you. Because this is what we see in Christ. And this is what we celebrate each year in Christmas. So as we process this, guys, let, let me pray for you this morning. We say, O supreme ruler of the visible and invisible worlds. My heart is drawn out to Thee for Thy amazing grace and condescension. Thou hast kept my conversion fresh before me, that season of my first spiritual comfort when I passed through the Red Sea by a way I did not expect. I rejoiced then for that unthought-of passage that delivered me from the fear of the Egyptian when I had almost despaired of life. And I rejoice now as these things are fresh and lively in my mind. In fact, Lord, my soul melts when I think of thy days of old with me, when a poor, worthless creature without wisdom to direct or strength to help myself was laid under the happy necessity of living upon thee and finding thy consolations large. God, thou art my divine treasury in whom all fullness dwells, my life, my hope, my joy, my peace, my glory, my end. May I daily be more and more conformed to thee, Lord with the meekness and calmness of the Lamb in my soul, and a feeling sense, God, let me feel the joy of heaven, where I long to join angels free from imperfections, where in me the image of my adored Savior will be completely restored, so that I may be fit for your enjoyments and your employments. I am not afraid to look upon the king of terrors in the face, for I know that I shall be drawn, not driven, out of the world. Until then, Father, let me continually glow and burn out for thee. And when the last great change shall come, let me awake in thy likeness, leaving behind me an example that will glorify thee while my spirit rejoices in heaven, praising thee for your life.